It is Monday, August 21st, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the intersection of cyclists and farmers on the back roads. These roads they've known as theirs for so many years, all of a sudden, different group of people's out here enjoying them too, and a guy wearing overalls, seeing a guy wearing tights going up and down the road is just another one of those aspects of being uncomfortable. Tractors, bicycles, and country roads. Plus, the reason some of the best speakers were made in Arkansas. A scientist in his right mind would uh, settle and hope Arkansas and start building the world's finest speaker. Well, it, uh, that catches the eye, and then we start talking about speakers. And where you might find the next big Arkansas business success story. Exhibition of some very advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies um, as part of that. And then, of course, we'll have uh, Kiva, which is our micro lending platform. First, the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures from Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Annie Leibovitz at Work opens September 16th. More at crystalbridges.org. It is Monday, August 21st, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, the Startup Crawl is returning to its autumn schedule this year. The nonprofit Startup Junkie brings entrepreneurs, craft beer, music, and a sense of curiosity together next month in downtown Fayetteville. A preview is ahead in our second half hour. We start this Monday with bicycles. Northwest Arkansas is full of them, and not just on the paved trails. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports. Imagine you're a cyclist wandering from paved urban streets of Benton County to gravel rural roads. While you're enjoying the ride, sense of openness, and view of fields, a tractor meets you at the bottom of a hill. Wes Evans, a beef producer and Benton County Farm Bureau secretary, says this is a familiar scenario. You know, these... These roads they've known as theirs for so many years, all of a sudden, different group of people's out here enjoying them too. And, and you know, a guy wearing overalls, seeing a guy wearing tights going up and down the road is, is just another one of those aspects of being uncomfortable. Rural residents have seen more cyclists on the road because it's a large tourist attraction. In recent months, the cycling industry has generated about $150 million in economic impact for the state, according to the Federal Reserve Bank. Gravel cycling is one of the fastest-growing sectors of the industry and is prevalent in Benton County, where Bentonville is the self-proclaimed mountain biking capital of the world. The last few, probably the last three years, it has just absolutely exploded to where you're starting to see more groups, you're starting to see more organized uh, organized rides, and I guess races. They're having a lot of races and stuff out here. Some rural residents know what to do around large equipment where visibility and maneuvering are limited, or how to react if an animal is on the road. Others new to rural spaces might not. The Farm Bureau and Runway Group started the Respect Rural Roads initiative and released a video of a conversation with Evans and Andy Chasteen, a team member on Runway's Rural Recreational Roads Project, about being safe on roads. As cyclists and as farmers, and not to jump right into it, but I, I think my question for you is like, in the farming industry and in the farming community, what, what are the the crux points, the sticking points to bike riders out on these roads, you know, especially the gravel roads, you know. Um, 
This is a campaign meant to educate people about road safety, communication, and offer tips. Farm bureaus from counties outside of the region are also interested in the project. Chastine is a cyclist of 20 years and is an off-road rider. He says the increase in gravel riding kicked off the initiative with the Farm Bureau. And so that was kind of the, the genesis of the idea, you know. How can we build this connection between riders and farmers and folks who live it all, out on these roads and preserve and protect the wild and outdoor spaces that we have, uh, you know, initially and obviously in Benton County. Evans and Chastine often field questions from producers and cyclists. They can be about farming operations like what's that smell and what kind of cow is that? Or the best roads for gravel riding and tractor etiquette, a topic Evans and Chastine touch on during their conversation. And, and typically tractors are always going to be pulling a piece of equipment, which is a trailer right, uh, of, of sorts, you know, whether it be a cutter, whether it be uh, a baler, yep. a rake, a yep. plow, whatever. And, and you have to treat those like, like trailers, mm -hmm. but also they're oversized. So with, with that being said, and the limited visibility that we have, a lot of times we use different practices on the road as far as I can't see if somebody's trying to pass me, I'll start veering into the other lane to kind of make sure they understand something's fixing to happen. Makes sense. Evan says another common question he gets from producers is why there is an interest in gravel cycling when there are thousands of miles of trails in the region. He says many riders want to enjoy a sense of adventure and avoid safety concerns associated with traffic. For Chastine, this is one of the reasons why he cycles off-road. He says through this project, some people find common ground in preservation of spaces. I think that we found very common interest with a lot of these folks that we've been working with, and it, it kind of warms my heart. It makes me happy to realize that we're kind of moving in the same direction towards the same goal. It's been a really nice experience for all of us, I think. For almost 10 years, Johnny Gonzalez has served as the staff chair of the Benton County Cooperative Extension Service, and throughout that time, he has seen more bicycles. Because the area attracts people from across the U.S., some might not know of the existing agriculture community in Benton County. And you can travel up and down 49 and land in Bentonville or Rogers there and, and think that it's all town. But once you get out, it's still very, very agriculture, at least in parts of the county. In conversations, Gonzalez says the most common topic people mention is wanting to avoid an accident. Although there is a limited pool of producers who do cycle in the county, he says some are beginning to recognize a welcome consumer base. Some cyclists might be interested in buying ears of corn or a quart of strawberries at the end of a bike ride. And Farm Bureau really appreciates the Runway Group taking an interest in, in the ag community and learning more about Benton County agriculture. And Farm Bureau really wants to promote safety and also understands that these people are our customers. We're in protein production in Benton County, and so they are our customers. They exercise a lot, and they probably eat a lot of protein, and that's exactly what we produce in Benton County is a lot of protein. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One, I'm Anna Pope. We keep riding on the back roads as Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis takes us to gravel roads. 
Since the pandemic, road cycling has exploded in popularity, and America's newfound love of bikes is on full display in northwest Arkansas. However, in metros like Fayetteville or Bentonville, drivers and cyclists have to share roadways, and as the number of people road biking increases, so do accidents. Brandon Pack is the director of cycling tourism for Experience Fayetteville, and we spoke earlier this summer during a local gravel bike race. Making sure people feel comfortable on bikes in northwest Arkansas is literally how he makes his living. He says that while more people on bikes is almost always good, more bikes on city streets next to cars has proven deadly. You know, as distracted driving and as, you know, road conditions have become unsafer over the recent years, mm-hmm. I think you folks can, can research that pretty quick and see that um, distracted driving cyclists are dying at a rate in this country that we've never seen before. According to the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, 961 cyclists died in car crashes in 2021. Of those deaths, more than 800 occurred in urban spaces. Pack says cyclists don't feel safe biking through metropolitan areas anymore. And when the asphalt failed them, many sought comfort in country roads. With low traffic density and high visibility, back roads are a cyclist's dream. Pack says cyclists of all ages and skill levels have enthusiastically embraced gravel cycling, partly due to the ease of entry into the sport. Gravel riding is just like traditional road biking. The only difference is you're pedaling on an unpaved surface. Pack says gravel removes the danger of road biking and forgoes the technicality of mountain biking, leaving riders with an easygoing experience. You don't even need a special bike. Once you're biking down a back road, you're gravel biking. Pack says Arkansas is poised to capitalize on the new gravel craze because, as nearly any Arkansan can tell you, the state isn't lacking dirt roads. The race Pack was running was a unique one called the Highland Gravel Classic. The gravel bike race was one of two North American qualifying races for the Trek Union Cyclist International Gravel World Series and took place across 66 miles of back roads in Washington and Madison counties. The race drew competitors from 39 states and eight different countries. Pack says Northwest Arkansas was the natural choice for the race's location. It's highly, uh, it's visually rewarding, right? And we know the Ozarks are absolutely beautiful. And the Ozarks and the Bostons extend deep into Madison County. And so while the event itself does officially start in, you know, outside of Fayetteville and in Washington County, the gravel roads as they lead into the forest, lead into Madison County, where there's miles and miles and miles of just beautiful, scenic, rural back roads. And that's what these cyclists are looking for. According to the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, 80% of county roads in Arkansas are unpaved. Pack says as the cycling world moves to gravel, people will travel to Washington and Madison counties just to experience the Ozark and back roads. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. And the Rogers Cycling Festival next month will offer a variety of ways to travel on two wheels. The September 9th festival includes a family ride along the rail yard loop never straying from sidewalks or trails for 15 miles. The new enduro race at Rail Yard Park is described as technical but accessible riding that makes use of the mountain bike trails around Lake Atalanta. There will also be cycling vendors in the Rider Village at Frisco Plaza in downtown Rogers. It's September 9th. Proceeds raised will be directed toward cycling nonprofits. And another September gathering, this one in Fayetteville, has our attention later this hour. This year's Startup Crawl is September 8th. Organizers say there are plenty of things to do for both entrepreneurs 
and customers alike. The obvious is just getting more eyeballs on, on what they've created and what they're making. So the, the opportunity to kind of get in front of potential customers, uh, but also opportunity to maybe find someone who's interested in investing. We'll hear about that startup crawl later on today's show. Attention KUAF listeners, your favorite monthly concert series, The Lunch Hour, is taking the stage and receiving national recognition. From the hard-hitting raps about Searcy, Arkansas by Eddie Canyon to the beautiful electronic classical music by Amos Cochran, see some of your favorite local artists sharing a platform with artists like Leon Bridges, Saba, and more. All you have to do is go to NPR Live Sessions and search KUAF. On Friday, August 11th, the Arkansas Department of Education suddenly announced that they would be removing AP African American Studies from schools. In a statement released on last Monday, the department said, quote, The department encourages the teaching of all American history and supports rigorous courses not based on opinions or indoctrination, end quote. Since that statement, Ozarks at Large has requested, over multiple emails and phone calls, for specific examples from the African American Studies coursework that they deemed as indoctrination. On Friday evening, the Department of Education's spokesperson sent us an email with the subject CRT examples, as in critical race theory. Critical race theory is an academic field taught in law school to analyze and think critically about how laws may be shaped by race and ethnicity. None of the examples provided by the Department of Education were from the AP course, nor were any of them examples of critical race theory being taught to students. Ozarks at Large has followed up with Kim Mundell, the department's spokesperson this morning, and we have not heard back yet. We once again requested examples of indoctrination specifically within the AP African American Studies course being taught. All six schools that had planned to teach the course this year have announced they will continue to do so. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson says he is now qualified to appear in the first Republican Party presidential primary debate this week. Yesterday on the CNN program State of the Union, he announced he had more than 40,000 individual donors, one of the thresholds to be included in the televised debate. The Republican National Committee has yet to announce just which candidates have met all qualifications that the RNC established for participation in the Thursday night debate. Law enforcement officers across the state have picked up 15,000 naloxone kits thanks to the Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership, or AORP. Naloxone, also known as Narcan, reduces the effect of opioid overdose. Officers collected their kits from the Naloxone Distribution Center at Camp Robinson in central Arkansas last week. The kits were purchased by the AORP using $675,000 of funds from the National Opioid Settlement. Arkansas Drug Director Tom Fisher highlighted the dangers of the opioid crisis and encouraged continuing efforts for combating drug-related deaths. I agree and I understand the conversation and the approach to attacking violent crime, but I'd like to argue that this epidemic, the overdose crisis, we should be spending at least the same amount of effort, if not more, addressing overdoses in the state. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders also spoke to emphasize the importance of fighting back against the opioid epidemic. We know that this is something that allows us to fight back against a growing problem. We want to continue to make sure that every law enforcement agency and individual has the tools and the resources they need to help keep our community safe. 
According to Fisher, 2,100 lives have been saved since law enforcement officers in Arkansas began to carry Narcan in 2017. The KUAF broadcast area is again under an excessive heat warning today and tomorrow. Highs across the region today will be between 101, 103 degrees. Heat index values between 114 and 119. The unemployment rate in Arkansas for July was unchanged from June. The Arkansas Division of Workforce Services reports 2.6 percent of Arkansans are unemployed. Nationwide, that number is 3.6 percent, a tenth of a percentage point decline from June. The civilian labor force rose in July by more than 3,200 workers, with 1.3 million people in Arkansas unemployed. That's about 10,000 fewer people unemployed than in July 2022. K-12 through schools are back in session now here in Arkansas, and the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI, is offering steps for parents to protect their children from the harmful side effects of social media. In a YouTube video posted by ACI's president, Dr. Joe Thompson, he says issues like disrupted sleep, cyberbullying, and exposure to hate-based content all negatively impact young people's health. There's a growing concern about the mental health of our kids increased rates of depression and anxiety, increased suicide attempts, a real set of issues across a broad swath of our community. The U.S. Surgeon General has made a direct link about the increased exposure of social media and the potential negative impact it has on our kids' mental health. Thompson offered SIPs, like using parental controls to set time limits on devices and apps, restricting screen time at least an hour before bed, and having open discussions with children about what they see on social media and how it makes them feel. More information and resources on safer social media practices on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Thousands of college students are beginning their fall semester around the region today. It's the first day of classes at the University of Arkansas, John Brown University, the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, and Northwest Arkansas Community College. The University of the Ozarks in Clarksville hosts classes beginning tomorrow, and the semester opened at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah last week. University of Arkansas Chancellor Charles Robinson expects a record fall enrollment this year. In a message to the university community, Robinson writes, he anticipates a new record for the number of Arkansans in the incoming freshman class as well, though the overall size of the freshman class is not expected to be the largest ever. Chancellor Robinson writes the freshman class has an average high school GPA of 3.81. That breaks last year's record of 3.76. Former Washington County Judge Joseph Wood is the new chair of the Republican Party in Arkansas. Wood, who is also the Secretary of Transformation and Shared Services, was elected to the post Saturday after being nominated by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And not only are college classes resuming... So, too, are college sports. The 20th-ranked John Brown University women's soccer team opened with a 7-1 to win over Evangel Saturday. And the JBU volleyball team won two of three matches at the JBU Invitational this weekend in Siloam Springs. The UAFS volleyball team will host a scrimmage in Fort Smith tomorrow night. And the JBU men's soccer team will host Friends University tomorrow evening. And a scientist in his right mind would... Uh settle and hope Arkansas and start building the world's finest speaker. Well, it, uh, that catches the eye, and then we start talking about speakers. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, welcome. Thank you. Whose voice was that? That was a man named Paul Klipsch, which if you uh, 
listen to music, if you are an audiophile at all, you know that name. They're some of the greatest speakers in the world. Among audiophiles, I mean, it's a it's one of those golden names. It's a kind of speaker I've never had and I've always wanted since I was a kid. And most people I have found out since I was telling people around the station the last couple of days that this is who we were going to talk about this week, you and yeah. I. And they knew the name, but they didn't know there was an Arkansas connection. Right. And there's a huge yeah. Arkansas connection. Um, Paul Klipsch. Uh, who invented the Klipsch horn, which mm -hmm. was uh, leaps and bounds above anything that was being designed or manufactured at the time, um, started in Hope, Arkansas. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Hope. Well, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Mike Huckabee. Yeah. Yeah. Mac McClarty. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And my, my great aunts. There you go. Because, well, one of them taught Bill Clinton oh, and Mike right. Huckabee. That's right. And Mac McClarty in kindergarten. Did she have Paul Klipsch in kindergarten? No. Okay. He was a little, but she knew him. <laughs> okay. Because I, I asked him when I was a teenager, do you know this, Bobby? And they said, yeah. I think they described him as sort of an odd bird. All right. You know, they said they see him around town. Real nice fellow, but they just said he was a little eccentric well he started this career when he was a teenager right yeah he made his first speaker uh when he was 14 i believe and he made it out of a, a mailing tube mm -hmm. and some headphones and you know he was born in like the turn of the century 1904 okay and so he invented this little speaker as a kid before there was even radio. Oh. It was a year before the first public radio broadcast. Okay, so he's doing this at a time when Thomas Edison is an international figure and working right. with audio. Yeah. Right, he's, yeah, yeah it, it hasn't been that long since the phonograph, right. Victrola, right. Uh, was out. And, you know, it had that very tinny sound. Mm -hmm to it and he was an engineer all of his life and decided uh, that he would put his efforts his genius he was considered a genius but towards audio and improving sound well how did he get because he's not a native Arkansas how did he get to hope well during the war he was stationed in hope they had a the second a, world war yes yeah. world war ii um because in the 20s, or the 10s, 20s, and 30s, uh, he was an engineer. He was building radios. Uh, he even did a stint down in Chile uh, working on electric locomotives. But that's where he first got the ideas for the sound, and we'll talk about that. Because it all has to do with horns mm -hmm. and the technology that, that he did there. But... Um, he was stationed in Hope. There was a proving ground there. Mm -hmm. it was, uh, I mean, I think they still find ammunition oh, from wow. where they had, uh, you know, artillery practice mm -hmm. and that sort of thing down there. But um, he uh, he stuck around in Hope, and there was, of course, surplus buildings and land, and he he bought 
Someone started his factory there in 1948. Okay. So let's fast forward to 1989. I'm at KTV, and we lined up a day to, to spend and hope with him at his, at the time, was a fairly small factory. I mean, it was just there in hope. But uh, Susan Rosgen and uh, reporter, anchor, and photographer and I went down there, spent the day with him, got a complete tour and um, this was, uh, gosh, it, he would have been 85 at the wow. time. And this is how Susan sort of describes him in her report. In some ways, Paul Klipsch reminds you of the professor you had in college. So brilliant that you were always hopelessly lost. Well, that's an early crossover network, which tells the low frequencies below 400 hertz to go to the woofer, and the frequencies above 400 hertz to go to the tweeter. Do you think people appreciate all the sophisticated principles that go into these? Probably not, but they appreciate the lack of distortion or the absence of distortion that results from using a horn. We're talking about Paul Klipsch this week. And you heard him mention the horn. Yes, yes. So from what I can tell, I have no engineering degree. I really don't know that much about speakers either. But from what I can tell, it's the... The horn and the size of the horn, the length of the horn, that has to do with the reduction of distortion. That's about as far as okay. I can that's take good. It. That's good. But um, you know, he had first used. I mentioned he worked on uh, electric locomo locomotives down in Chile. Mm -hmm. Well, he heard in the I guess the railroad yards over their loudspeakers. It was a horn coiled up in a box and it was a basically just a, a loud announcement speaker but that sort of gave him this idea to put it in his speakers what's missing in a clip horn is the uh, distortion uh, in other words the uh, what was missing in the uh, uh, early speakers was the free uh, lack of freedom from distortion. In other words, something that was there that should not have been. It wasn't something that was missing. It was something that ought not to have been there. All right, so how do they work? Well, it's it's complicated, but Susan Rosgen here, the reporter who went down and we did the story, has kind of a simple explanation of how the speakers work. Now, some people invent out of blue and... Uh, create something in a flash of lightning or something or other. It was decades ago that Paul Klipsch made a name for himself by perfecting the audio concept that makes Klipsch speakers among the best in the world. Oh, there's a company on the cutting edge in England and a couple of other companies in this country that turn out a lot of speakers too. But competition? Well, to be grammatical about it, I'd like to say there ain't none. In fairness, he's right. There ain't nothing quite like a Klipsch speaker. Without an engineering degree to explain it, here's the basic idea. Inside a traditional looking speaker, the audio drivers, the things that project the sound, are attached to horns, and it's the horns that reduce the distortion to make Klipsch speakers sound so good. All right, so the longer the horn, the less, less distortion. distortion. That's my understanding okay. of it. And so he would fold these horns because you can't have a 16-foot right. horn in a speaker, so he would fold them 
And so a 16-foot one may be four feet if it's folded over and the sound runs through chambers inside the speaker. I mean, that makes sense, but it sounds also incredibly difficult to make it work and sound as pristine as these guys who work there wanted it to sound like. Well, and that's why they're such great speakers. You know, they were handmade, uh, most of them walnut, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, custom-built cabinets. And, um, well, here's an interview with their chief engineer, Roy Delgado, who started at Clips. She's been there since 1986. The first time I heard a clip short, I was in awe. And when I heard that, I said, that is the closest to life I've ever heard. And not by just a little, by a lot. What was it like spending a day at this factory? Well, when we went down there, uh, it was just the building, the one building Mm -hmm. that he had bought um, from the military and um, now it's a museum. Okay. But, um, well, Jim Hunter, who's retired now from Klipsch, runs this. It's a nonprofit museum. It's in Hope. Hmm. Um, and right across the street, there is still a factory that makes what they call their heritage okay. line of speakers. You know, they have a whole new set of... I guess you would call them more affordable home speakers, but mm-hmm. the original ones, you know, there's the, the names that are burned into my mind as a as a kid: the Heresy, yeah, the La Scala, the Corner Horns, <laughs> d- yeah, the cor- the chorus. There, they were these fine. When he only had a handful of speakers that they would they would use, you know, now they're sound bars, and, right, 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 uh, right. Yeah, that sort of thing. But um, here's Jim Hunter from the Klipsch Heritage Museum. Uh, This was the Southwest Proving Ground Telephone Exchange Building during World War II. While the building cost $49,000 to build it, Paul stuck around after the war and was able to pick it up for just $3,000. It became our first factory, and Paul moved into it May 3rd, 1948. While the majority of the items in the museum are Klipsch-derived, a great many are not. Uh, Paul was very fond of Isaac Newton's quote, if I have seen further than others, it's because I've been standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Paul used this a lot, and our collection includes a lot of material from the giants, uh, also some from some competitors. So he was out there in front of that building. Yeah. uh, And that's where the museum is. Um, At the beginning, you heard him talking about all these parts of a speaker. Mm -hmm. Well, that was actually just outside of his office. It's now part of the museum. Okay. So um, you have, as as he said, Klipsch materials and then uh, technology that preceded and even some of the competitors – According to you know Jim Hunter, so I'd like to go down there and see. I would love to go the down museum. There. Yeah, but one of the craziest things that was in there um, was an anechoic chamber. You're saying that like I would know what an anechoic well, chamber is, and I and I didn't either. But it is to test sound. 
Okay. Um, it's it's a room that uh, it's designed to stop echoes. Basically, it's a not. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, the echoic is. I see. Echo. So it's basically a an isolated soundproof room. Ah. And I went in there, and they closed me in, and it was so <laughs> quiet, I could hear my heartbeat. Oh, oh, that sounds a little unnerving. Yeah, my stomach yeah. started to growl a bit, and it, it just, it was almost <laughs> deafening. Does that, do, is that still there? Um, I believe it is. Okay. And it was, it looked like it was, you know, hand built. They would slide the doors Mm -hmm. and you'd get in and they'd, oh, they'd kind of close you in there. But it was, yeah, it was fascinating. Well, at the end of the interview, Susan Rosgen asked uh, Klipsch about his legacy. A hundred years from now, looking back, I don't know what people would think about it. I might might go down in history if there is any uh, as a crackpot. He just shrugged after that question, and just he didn't care hmm. uh, whether people thought he was crazy or not. It That's probably turns a healthy out, way to go. Well, yeah, and it yeah. turns out he didn't. He died in 2002 at the age of 98. Wow. So, I mean, he was going strong till he was almost 100 years old. Now, you were talking about the different brands, and, and if you were an audiophile, you know, you would dream about maybe— Owning the Klipschhorn. That was oh, the yeah. Cadillac, right? Oh, that was... What did it retail for? Well, you know, the Klipschhorn was usually for, you know, big yeah. auditoriums or dance. Yeah. But a, but a Klipschhorn will cost you sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars right. a pair. Okay, yeah. Um, but now the very smallest, the home was called a heresy, and that's what I always wanted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a kid, you can't afford $3,200 as a kid. No. for a pair of speakers. <laughs> no. And then once you get older, you wonder, do I want to spend $3,200 yeah. on a pair of speakers? So I don't have any yet. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, the heresy, I always thought it was a strange name. But apparently... Uh, he was in the design stages. Since this is the smallest home, uh, I think he he did some designs that were very unusual. And one mm-hmm. of his employees says, "Gosh, you're uh, committing audio heresy here." And he said, "That's a good name." I like so that. he called it heresy. You, I think you would know this. So Klipsch, you know, associated with Arkansas, jacuzzi. That has an Arkansas connection, too, correct? Yes. Yeah, Hot yes. Springs, right? Uh, hot or, Springs, Benton, Yeah. Uh, in between okay. all that central yeah. Arkansas area. Maybe we should do something on jacuzzi. Someday, yeah. I, I, I let you hey, pick I the, like a good whirlpool. Yeah. <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History with us almost every Monday. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Kyle. I'll see you next week.
Cal, I bet that story sounded a lot better with a pair of clip headphones on. I imagine it would, yes. This is Ozarks at Large. The Startup Crawl is back this autumn. The crawl is intended as a one-stop celebration of entrepreneurship spread across the Fayetteville Square, hosted by the nonprofit Startup Junkie. Caleb Talley, the executive director of Startup Junkie, says several local breweries will be there, and there will be live music from bands including the Grammy-nominated Sister Hazel and, of course, food trucks. Talley says it's all designed to bring entrepreneurs and potential customers together. We will have dozens of startups, um, clients uh, of ours, and then small businesses that maybe have a, a something to demo, a widget to d- display um, on uh, exhibition in the Prior Center, uh, where our office is, as has, has been the case in the past. But we've all also activated the Town Center this year. So we're spreading out. And so we're kind of a little more real estate to work with as far as how many startups that we can uh, put on display and have the opportunity to engage with our community. Uh, and... Um, it's free to attend if you don't want to drink the beer, get the beer cup, and sample beer uh, from the, each of the stops. But uh, anyone that wants to just attend and come and see some of the cool startups that are in their own backyard that they might have might not even know have it existed, I guess, within the ecosystem, um, they can just come and, and meet all the awesome entrepreneurs. Just an example of mm-hmm. some of those widgets or processes or dreams that will be on exhibit. Well, I, I can say that some of the companies from our fuel accelerator, which kicked off this week, uh, will likely be on display too. And so it'll be an exhibition of some very advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies um, as part of that. And then, of course, we'll have uh, Kiva, which is our micro lending platform. We'll also have some of their clients, you know, some more traditional small businesses that'll be on display. Um, as far as uh, specific companies, I can't say off the top of my okay. head. <laughs> it's like picking your favorite child. Sure. Is this also perhaps an opportunity for some of these startups to meet with someone who might be interested in helping them, investing in them? Absolutely. I think it's an opportunity for them in a number of ways, Um, you know, one, the obvious is just getting more eyeballs on, on what they've created and what they're making. So the the opportunity to kind of get in front of potential customers, uh, but also opportunity to maybe find someone who's interested in investing. Um, you know, we've got sponsorship this year from uh, from a VC fund, Atento, um, that, you know, they're going to have some activations um, um, for potential investors. Uh, so we hope that that would be the case, where we, whether that's from an investor or even um, just maybe a potential co-founder or collaborator. You know, we call those kind of creative collisions. You know, you provide the beer, you provide the, the, the space, and then you kind of put people together and hope that magic happens. What do you get out of someone like me who mm-hmm. isn't, doesn't have the capital to invest and at my age, probably not going to do a startup, happy with the job I have now. What do you get out of me giving you 30 bucks for the beer cup and the beer and me just walking around and seeing these? Well, um, you might not be an investor or, you know, um, a founder, but you are a consumer and you are a potential customer. So uh, in addition to getting those eyeballs on on whatever they're building, um, it's an opportunity to do potentially some customer discovery mm-hmm. around what they're working on. You know, maybe they, they haven't had the opportunity to be – to, to – um, you know, kind of demo what they're building to a thousand people in kind of one sitting. Uh, so it's an opportunity to really get some feedback on what they're building too. Because a lot of times uh, we see startups that come in and they've only talked to their 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 brother and their mom about what they've been working on, and they haven't really had that feedback from kind of an unbiased audience. Um, 
And given that we are in the South, everybody's pretty you know, generally nice when yeah. when you're um, when you're when you're building something. Everybody says they will support you or they'll buy it or whatever else. But the opportunity to really kind of um, get that feedback that they might not otherwise get. You mentioned that it's the night before a football game, mm-hmm. and there is a free element. You do not have to spend money to be mm-hmm. so. So part of this, you're going to be getting eyeballs from Little Rock and Hope and Texarkana mm-hmm. people who don't even know they're Absolutely. coming up to a startup Absolutely. crawl and they see this activity. Absolutely. And so I'm hoping that, you know, people out and about, ho- hopefully the weather will be great. Um, you know, people out and about on the square on a Friday before a home football game, you know, it's almost guaranteed to capture a lot of people that are just out and about and, um, you know, mingling and going out for dinner and that sort of thing. And that's what we hope, uh, you know, maybe they are find their way close to the square and they can hear the live music and they wander in and they learn something about our um, entrepreneurial ecosystem. Do you talk to the, the, the entrepreneurs who are going to be in front, like what to expect, how to how to put up mm-hmm. your display, that mm-hmm. sort of thing? We, we do. Uh, we kind of um, let them own, kind of own that, you know, they get that six foot table and um, we always, they always ask kind of for advice around how they should, um, they should set up shop. But we kind of tell them, you know, do you, um, what's going to demonstrate your business the best, what's going to tell your story. Cause that's the main thing is we want them to tell their story, um, to the people passing through. When I think of entrepreneurs, I, or startups, I tend to think of people, I don't know, 35 or younger. Does it, is it a bigger swath than that? It's a, it's a wide swath. And, and, um, at startup junkie, um, since we are providing no cost consulting to, Anybody that has an idea up to a fully functioning business, we are very top of the funnel. So we see every end of the spectrum, whether they are, you know, still in school. We've had entrepreneurs that have won pitch contests and things that were, you know, still in it's still in, you know, high school all the way up to, you know, retirees that are starting their next their next career or their next venture. Someone goes to startup crawl, gets inspired. How do they then connect with Startup Junkie and say, I want to be part of this next in September 2024? Absolutely. Well, we're easy to find. We're right there in the square. Uh, hopefully they'll – You'll you'll be yeah, a presence, well, I'll, yes. I'll be there. Uh, our team will be there. Um, our office will be activated as a stop. Uh, so hopefully they'll come through our office and, and meet our team. Uh, and we're easy to find, like I said, and we're easy to uh, book a consulting call with. Like I said, it's no cost to anyone. We're funded by third parties. that allows us to provide our resources uh, for free to the community and so. Hopefully they'll come by our office and set up a time to do a consulting meeting. Caleb, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks. Caleb Talley is the executive director of Startup Junkie, the nonprofit sponsor of next month's Startup Crawl taking place in downtown Fayetteville. There are early bird tickets on sale now for the September 8th event. You can find them at Eventbrite. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. You'd have to search pretty hard to find the band's recordings, but Jubilee Dive helped jumpstart Little Rock's original music scene in the 1980s, while its core members went on to further musical glories. The Jubilee Dive story begins at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Benny Turner of Harmony Grove in Saline County met Little Rock natives Chris Maxwell and Joe Cripps at UALR's Jazz Studies program in the early 1980s. They decided to form a rock band for the summer, after nixing the idea of a Manhattan transfer-style band with some of the UALR jazz choir that would play cruise ships that became the Patios, a new wave cover band. The Little Rock scene proved ripe for the patios, according to bassist Benny Turner. 
Patios just really took off, especially after we did this show with Walla Voodoo in the summer of 83, because then we started getting really good press. So this was a band that became a working band a lot faster than we expected, so much so that I was able to quit my day job. I was working at the Arkansas State Hospital as a mental health worker. After a couple of years and lead vocalist changes, the patios morphed into Jubilee Dive, anchored by the songs of Chris Maxwell. There were no bands doing original music that we knew, no venues that were doing original music. By 86, we had about 15 to 18 original songs. And by 87, we had dropped pretty much doing any cover material and we were just doing you know, original stuff. Jubilee Dive played all over the state, in Memphis and in Dallas, and including the inaugural South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas. When people saw that bands that were starting to do original music were packing these clubs, then, uh, you know, it started just kind of evolving more rapidly and developing until finally the Arkansas Musician Showcase in 92, where all the bands are doing original music. It was a pretty fast evolution. Late at night when your girlfriend's there She might recall Samson's hair But Jubilee Dive didn't just galvanize Little Rock's original music scene in the 1980s. A Chris Maxwell side project from Jubilee Dive became Gun Bunnies, which signed to Virgin Records and released one album, 1990's Paw Paw Patch, produced by Little Rock native Jim Dickinson. I'm in the very same place as three years ago, and the only difference is there's nothing in here that I don't know. Maxwell went on to many other musical projects, including the band Skeleton Key, working with acts ranging from They Might Be Giants to Yoko Ono. And through his duo The Elegant Two, formed in the late 1990s, Maxwell's music is heard on TV shows like Bob's Burgers and Inside Amy Schumer. Dive drummer Judd Martindale of Hot Springs was also in Gun Bunnies and later joined with acclaimed Arkansas fingerpicking guitarist Richard Leo Johnson. Percussionist and so-called honorary Jubilee Dive lifetime member Joe Cripps later played with Grammy-winning polka band Brave Combo for many years before playing and producing an album on bluesman C. Dell Davis. In 2006, Texas musician Brent Best's band, The Drams, released an album called Jubilee Dive in homage and on which Cripps played. And although bassist Benny Turner left musical performance due to hearing loss, he may have had the most impact on the Little Rock music scene. Following Jubilee Dive and Time as Gun Bunny's road manager, Turner was booking agent at the legendary Little Rock Club's SOB in Juanita's Cantina. Not only did Turner help establish the city as a live music destination for national acts, he launched the long-running Arkansas Musicians Showcase. A 1994 Billboard magazine cover story on Little Rock music cites Jubilee Dive for helping foster the scene. Maxwell and Turner, quote, provided the fuel and sense of purpose for many in the local music community. The climate in the Little Rock region became charged with a sense of possibility, end quote. And to think, this all could have ended with a cruise ship cover band. From a 1987 Little Rock demo that later became a Gun Bunny song, here in its entirety is Jubilee Dive with Big Talk, written by Little Rock native Chris Maxwell. Bending trees down to the ground Talking a big about bringing them down Your mouth have teeth that break in two Wooden words that you can't chew Coming through the door, it's coming with nothing more.
1987 demo by Little Rock's Jubilee Dive, written by Chris Maxwell. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. And just this morning, Little Wing Productions announced it will bring country music star Neil McCoy to the Eureka Springs Auditorium in October. Tickets for that October 12th show go on sale to the public Friday at thunderticks.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, gaining a better understanding of how human trafficking happens. A lot of them wanted to know where this was happening. Can you tell us a neighborhood? And it's not that simple. It's not necessarily tied to a location, but it's more so associated with victims who are more susceptible to being groomed. The mindset we have to get out of thinking because I live in a good neighborhood that it's not going to happen to me or my kids. It's much more complicated than that. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports on the misconceptions of human trafficking and what law enforcement looks for. That's tomorrow at noon and at 7 on 91.3 KUAF. On the next episode of the Beloved Community Podcast from the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. Chris and Lindsay sit down with a man well-known in Fayetteville as an educator, leader, friend, mentor, and advocate, Dr. John Colbert. You know, we did the inclusion yes. way back yes. <laughs> when I was a little teacher. Before inclusion even became you know, mandatory, yes, I yes. started that at Bates Elementary yes. because, again, I wanted what was best for all students. And I know my students could succeed with that additional help that I knew that I could provide and and my fellow teachers could provide. Reflecting on a life of service with Dr. John Colbert on the next episode of The Beloved Community. You can listen for free at KUAF.com or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts.
A Razorback athlete is in possession of a new world record. Well, co-possession. Rosie Affiong is part of the United States 4x400 mixed relay team that won the gold and set the world record this weekend at the World Championships in Budapest. The Americans, anchored by Alexis Holmes, won in dramatic style Saturday with Holmes' surge at the end passing the Netherlands' Femke Bowl. Here's how the CBC called the final seconds. She's got that 400 hurdle strength, but Holmes is coming. She's closing. What a race. What a finish. Oh, my goodness me, United States. Rosie Effiong, a junior this upcoming year for the Razorbacks, ran the second leg of the relay. And after the race, she told reporters she wasn't sure she'd be picked to be on the finals relay team. But once they said it, I was like, it's time. So I'm just very, I'm just happy. I'm, I don't know what more to, I can say. I'm stuttering. And that world record was established in front of a loud boisterous crowd in Budapest, something Effiong noticed even while helping set the world record. So this is my first time overseas, so it's like I wasn't expecting that many people to be in the stands. It's very like they're very loud cheering. I'm like, this is this how like football players feel in the America? I'm like, dang, it's very it's nice. I love the culture here. The 4x400 mixed relay allows each team to have two men and two women running. The race has been part of the world international level since 2017. By the way, two other Razorbacks had successful weekends in Hungary. Arkansas triple jumper Jaden Hibbert produced the farthest distance in World Championships qualifying history with a second round leap of 58-1 to earn the only automatic qualifying mark for today's final in the triple jump. And Razorback Nikisha Price won her opening round heat of the 400 meters to advance to today's semifinal. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Prairie Grove. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Jack Travis, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Additional reporting for today's show provided by Daniel Carruth and the news staff at KUAR in Little Rock. Our membership director here at KUAF is Brett Ratliff. Today's show was put together inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. During this program, not on the air, but you asked me, what is the mascot of uh, Friends University? That's who the JVU men's soccer team will be hosting in Salem Springs tomorrow night. Yes. I had to look it up. They used to be, until 1960, the Fightin' Quakers. Yeah, yeah, a very, a very logical. Uh, Quakers known for their for their radical, their aggressive fighting. behavior. Yes, but now uh, since 1960, they are the Falcons, and Freddie the Falcon is their mascot. All right, I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. We'll see you tomorrow. The Momentary in Bentonville presents award-winning indie rock band Always with guest Julia Jacklin, Saturday, September 9th. This concert is part of The Momentary's Live on the Green series. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org.